This is an ABC podcast. Our agreement unlocks a set of transformative opportunities for jobs and skills and research and innovation in Adelaide and in Barrow in Finesse, in Western Australia and here in the United States. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, talking about the jobs that AUKUS will bring. We'll get to that later on the money. Hello, Richard Aidy with you. We're going to start with banks. As you know, America is having a few problems with its banking sector. Earlier this month, two of them, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, imploded. Depositors are going to be looked after, investors not so much. Combine that with the very different, much more complicated fall of Credit Suisse in Europe, and a lot of people have become nervous. Paul Mazzola is at the University of Wollongong. Paul, the Federal Reserve, so the US Central Bank, has put interest rates up another quarter of a percent. So that means surely it's decided fighting inflation is more important than shoring up the financial system. Yes, I think it's probably just a little bit more complicated than that. The expectations from the market were that the Fed would increase interest rates by half a percent. That's 50 basis points. So the market is probably seeing the increase of 25 basis points as a bit of a concession on the back of what's been happening in the banking sector over there uh, and an acknowledgement that the Fed needs to tread a little more lightly when it comes to hiking of interest rates. But the determination in um, fighting inflation is there. And that's a signal that the Fed doesn't believe it's on top of fighting the inflation rate, as opposed to here in Australia, Mm. where I think there is some acknowledgement that we've reached the peak of the inflation cycle. Well, it's still interesting, isn't it? Because the the US banking sector's in, in some turmoil, I don't want to overcook this, but but there is concern about it. And a big part of that has been the pressure of higher interest rates. Yeah, well, in fact, the rapid escalation in interest rates in the US is essentially one of the main causes of the troubles that we're seeing amongst some of the banks in the US. Because interest rates um, have an effect on the value of assets. Uh, Just put it simply, as interest rates rise, it does affect the value of a bond portfolio. And most banks around the world hold these financial instruments. And it's a mathematical relationship whereby when interest rates increase, the value of these assets go down. So we've seen a sustained increase in interest rates. And of course, the value of these portfolios that are being held on the balance sheets of these banks have been declining. Now, that's not a problem if you don't have to sell these bonds. Unfortunately, in the Silicon Valley Bank case, they were forced to sell their bonds. So they had to realise those losses. They had to sell at a loss. And that's what precipitated a lot of uh, the problems that they encountered. Now, with Silicon Valley, I mean, I I suspect most people in Australia hadn't heard of Silicon Valley Bank until this happened. If you put it in an Australian perspective, it's a small bank in American terms. It's large compared to Australian banks. I I think it has more assets than than Macquarie Bank. That's Um, right. But the US regulators, should they have known and, and could they have intervened months ago? Because this was obviously happening over time. What a great question, Richard. 
the US has a history of roller coasting regulation throughout the ages. In fact, there was a regulation that required banks to stress test these portfolios, just what I was talking about, uh, and stress test them in accordance with variations in interest rates, exactly what we've been seeing for the last year to two years. Those stress tests originally applied to banks with a threshold of $50 billion and over. And certainly Silicon Valley Bank fit into that category. In fact, so they uh, back then uh, would have been required to stress test those assets. But in 2018, the Trump administration rolled back that regulation and restricted the application of that regulation to only the very, very large banks, banks with total assets of over $700 billion. Mm. So all of a sudden, all these mid-sized banks in the US were absolved from applying this stress test. Now, had Silicon Valley Bank had to comply with this rule, the regulators would have been certainly aware. So yes, there's a missed opportunity there. Mm. Now, I want to move on from Silicon Valley, Paul, but before I do, the US government's uh, bailing out the depositors, uh, not the investors, but certainly the depositors. Yes. Right, right decision? Tough one, because you're asking the question that by bailing out all depositors that are the small and the large, do you now create or reinvigorate a problem that we know as moral hazard? To put it in a nutshell, I think they've done the right thing because of the nervousness in the market, I think, warranted it. I think Geithner, back in 2008, the US Treasury Secretary mm -hmm. acknowledged that he made the wrong decision in allowing Lehman Brothers to fail, which then precipitated the global financial crisis. So I think they've done the right thing. I don't profess that it, that decision should be t uh, undertaken in every case, but on the back of a series of other calamities that we've seen, particularly ones that have affected mums and dads with the collapse of certain crypto exchanges and so on. Signature the, Bank, yes, as well. Yeah, and Signature Bank as well within the same week. Mm. There's been a level of nervousness in the market. And again, we've got the failures of some other banks, particularly Credit Suisse, which has been all over the press. That leads me to think that the US regulators did make the right decision in protecting all depositors to instill confidence in the market. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Banking is a business of trust. Without the customer having trust in its financial institution, they won't deposit their money with them. Just briefly on moral hazard, you've written about this. Just, just unpack it a little, what you mean by that. Moral hazard is, is essentially when a financial institution is encouraged to take risky decisions because it will be absolved from any economic loss that is uh, resulting from those decisions. Yes. So that's the problem of moral hazard. However, then that has to be balanced against the risk of systemic failure and the uh, devastation that can affect, particularly through a contagion effect, that is that the bank runs that we've seen spreads all over the world and causes cat catastrophic damage, as we saw in the global financial crisis. Yes, so, so there's a there's a Goldi there's a Goldilocks zone, Paul. Basically, so can I ask you, will this contagion, uh, which people are concerned about, is there any chance of contagion here with our banks? 
it's always possible, Richard. Uh, we'll never say never. Uh, however, having said that, if I was wanting to be a bank customer, I'd rather be one here in Australia. We've got an excellent regulatory regime. Our banks are very well capitalised, much better capitalised today than they were back in 2008 during the global financial crisis. And even then, our banks survived the crisis. We were the envy of the world in that regard. I think that our banks also have state-of-the-art management, risk management in place. They understand interest rate risk. That's the risk that I was referring to earlier about the impact of interest rates on bond portfolios. They understand that. And they have access good access to liquidity so that if there was to be a bank run, they have alternate sources of funds. And the principal backstop is the RBA, which has shown in the past, even as recent as the during the onset of the pandemic, that it will provide emergency lines of liquidity to the banks. So with this practice that the RBA has shown in support of the Australian banking industry, we are much better placed. And it's a much more predictable scenario here than it might be elsewhere. That is, that is, I think, a reassuring place to finish things up. Paul, thank you very much for joining us today on The Money. You're welcome, Richard. Thank you. Paul Mazzola lectures in banking and finance at the University of Wollongong. Now to AUKUS. The meat of it is that Australia is to get nuclear-powered submarines, firstly buying second-hand American ones and then building eight British-designed boats in Adelaide. It's going to take three decades and apparently cost up to $368 billion. The government says it will create 20,000 jobs. But Professor of Economics John Quiggan sees some problems. Well, first, of course, the number is ludicrously small compared to the size of the project. I mean, we don't know how many how many of these jobs will last long, but this is apparently a peak number of of jobs to be created at some point in the project. Uh, Talking $300 billion, which is also a kind of rubbery figure, but we're still talking the order of $20 million per job. So it's obvious that even a small saving on, on the cost of the project would cancel out any benefits that these jobs might deliver. Uh, but then there's just the broader case of, of why we should be uh, creating lots of new tech jobs at a time when, on all measures, we seem to have a shortage of the, of the very skills that are going to be needed for this project. I'll come back to that because I think that's the meat of it. But just on, on the estimate, I am struggling to think of any big construction project, infrastructure project, and, and certainly defence acquisition project that comes in on budget. Well, yes, I don't think we should put a lot of weight on these numbers, but I think if we were looking at the question, is it worth buying these submarines, we'll be wanting to look at the benefits, which I could happily talk about, and we'd expect to see this kind of number increase. I think, as I say, the real issue is trying to fit this in at the same time and sell it as a job creation measure, I think, is just, just totally mistaken. Well, if the project goes ahead, and of course there's a history of announcements and things they're not happening over time. That's right, yes. I think on the construction side, there's 4,000 workers to design and build the new submarine yard, and then 4,000 to 5,500 to actually build the subs. These would be extremely skilled people, John, with expertise in manufacturing nuclear-powered vessels, which we do not have a lot of. No, I mean, there'd be a bunch of a bunch of these people would almost certainly have to be imported directly as as specialists from countries that have them. More generally, though, I mean, even the more routine skills, um, skilled trades, electricians and so forth, engineers, we have a shortage of them at the moment. Uh, so even if 
even if those jobs went to Australians, it only meant we needed more skilled migration. So I mean, it really is, is just not a sensible policy at all. I don't think enough has been made of this. As things stand with the skill shortages we already have and our reliance on immigration to supply most of our engineers, for example, these wouldn't be new jobs. They'd, they'd, they'd have to be transferred from some other part of the economy like decarbonisation or something. Absolutely. Uh, we have high priorities that need lots of skilled workers. Uh, the last thing we need is to increase the cost of defence procurement to create jobs. This is really, I think, nostalgia for a particular kind of industry structure that we had last century. There's a sort of still a sort of feeling out there that renewable energy isn't real jobs, that real jobs have to do with heavy pieces of equipment. You know, there was a lot of talk about how, uh, how complicated these submarines were and so forth. We just seem to be fixated on this idea that we should be using these programs to create jobs. Yeah, well, I, and there's there's no political divide on that. There's been uh, unstinting support from the opposition on this because both sides, of course, have treated defence procurement as industry policy. Yes, it's been been continuous. And um, if you go back a long way to the middle of last century, you could say, well, look, we really need to produce simpler kinds of weapons because we might be cut off, we might need to produce them ourselves. So there was that line, uh, that clearly doesn't apply to something like the submarines. We're not going to be producing those in a rush in wartime. And there was also a hope that we would develop a major export industry there's no reason for that. I mean, we don't have any particular advantage in this kind of construction. And to the extent we've had exports, they've largely been driven by the fact that we're willing to supply regimes like Saudi Arabia that might be um, restricted in their access to other markets. John, couldn't the government get cracking now, ensuring that we do have more skilled workers, so rehabilitating the VET sector and investing in TAFE and, and perhaps saying, if you want to do engineering, you won't have to pay HEX. Could, I mean, it could say, we, we can do this, we just have to start. Well, we already have started, I guess. I mean, although there's plenty to dislike about the Job Ready Graduates Program, that push in that direction, TAFE has been reformed and reformed. Uh, most of those reforms, at least until recently, were disastrous, but the notion was certainly that we we're going to increase our supply of school workers. So I don't think there's a lot more we can do uh, than we're already doing to try and fix up the problems in those areas. The difficulty is that the demands are, are there, they're going to grow. Adding on another demand isn't very helpful. And certainly, certainly there's just no reason to think that what Australia is going to be short of is jobs for electricians and engineers. The other part of your concern, I understand it, is that if, if you're spending $368 billion with an asterisk next to it, because yes. they're not really sure, mm. to not actually create jobs because they'll have to come from somewhere else, mm. $368 billion is a lot of opportunity costs. It is a lot of opportunity costs. I mean, it's important to remember this is over a very long period, so it's not it's not like the government has to come up with the money next year. And indeed, they're claiming that it's going to be more or less budget neutral over the period of the forward estimates, but um, it does imply a very big increase in defence spending on very heavy equipment. Now, yeah, if the government is convinced that this is what we need, which of course hasn't been argued at all, uh, we might say, well, you know, that's going to take money away from that could be spent on things that created lots of jobs and filled social needs. Uh, but of course, uh, instead, we're seeing a package which hasn't been explained at all on defence grounds, really. We just have to trust that this is the right choice. Being sold as a job creation package, if you look at Mr Albany's tweets, every one of them is about how many jobs there will be. Mm. And if you, well, if you go to, as I have, to the Prime Minister's website, you can find the media release, again, talking about 
all these jobs. But as you've just explained, it's not really a very robust set of numbers. Uh, not at all, no. I mean, I think, as I say, you could scarcely spend that much money and not employ somebody in the process. But certainly if, if, if the government was of the view that over the next 10, 20 or 30 years it really wanted to do something about full employment, which was, of course, part of its programme, there are a lot more ways to strengthen the labour market and create jobs than this. And, and we'd be focusing at the hard-to-reach parts of the labour market, you know, people who find it hard to get into the labour market and get employed, and not at um, skills like electricians, which uh, certainly, in my personal experience, uh, hiring an electrician is a, is a difficult job. Yeah, I'm trying to get solar at the moment, and it's actually difficult to even get people to come back to me uh, to get a quote. I'd say the solar industry is doing pretty well just now. Well, certainly well in the sense of plenty of demand, but of course they're struggling to, to find workers and um, the need to electrification is going to be going on right through the period of this contract, you know, 2050s when we're supposed to have reached net zero. Mm. John, the idea of getting back to full employment is another interview, in fact, another whole program. Perhaps we'll talk about that down the line. In the meantime, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. John Quiggan is Professor of Economics at the University of Queensland. You've heard a lot about AI lately, particularly since the end of last year at least, about chat GPT. But how will it, and indeed other AIs, affect our economy? Joshua Gans is the person to ask that. The Australian economist is a professor in the Rotman School at the University of Toronto, and the impact of innovations like ChatGPT is what he's paid to think about. ChatGPT is basically a chatbot, but it's not a chatbot that anyone has seen before. Uh, It's behind the other side of the conversation is a large language model which is one of these machine learning models that takes sometimes a year or more to train using uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of computer time. So basically the end result of that turned out of that stew was a very, very powerful companion effectively in work, allowing you to do things that we haven't even fully explored the potential for yet. Is is that the the difference from what has come before? Because, of course, we've had chatbots for a while and we've been working on AIs for decades. No, I think it's basically, you know, over the past uh, decade, AI in the form of machine learning. And so it's not really intelligence as we'd really see it, whether in people or, say, in a dog. (laughs) But it is very intelligence-like in how it interacts. And we've had these technologies evolving for the last 10 years. But what these latest developments are, and it's not just ChatGPT, there's a Google version, there's a Facebook version, and there's some other versions out there. Uh, People have said, okay, how can we take this to its limits? And the basic idea behind GPT is let's read everything we can possibly read that anyone has ever written (laughs) and put that into this large model that's mind-bogglingly large in terms of uh, its computer potential and see if the end result of that is something that is useful. Uh, And as it has turned out, it's been dramatically useful. This has made ChatGPT, which is the consumer-facing release of this, the fastest product ever to get 100 million users. And what it's done is still astonishing people. So I read in Forbes recently that that it passed the Wharton MBA exam, LSAT, 
GRE exams, essentially a whole suite of exams that people are used right. to spending years preparing for, and it can do it. That is right. Um, those are those exams which are sort of designed to test people's knowledge. And so if the computer has access to that same knowledge, it can do just as well. The interesting thing is it doesn't do some things well. For instance, you can't do mathematical calculations well. Well, it actually can't do them at all. Uh, what it does is it looks for similar ones and then makes a, a guess at the answer, which is you know not the way you should be doing mathematics. Uh, so it basically anything that involves what you could imagine the best autocorrect thing could ever do, right. ChatGPT does. But it's very useful so long as you understand that it is just enhanced autocorrect. And I, I'm very conscious, Josh, that what it's good at is seeming plausible, which of course is a lot of what journalism and broadcasting is. So so yes. what, what I do would be under threat from this kind of thing, but other jobs as well. Well, I think there's a lot of work that you can imagine could be under threat, but the term threat is a really odd one. For instance, let me talk about, you know, my job. As a university professor, I can ask ChatGPT to design an entire course and show readings for the students that they should have and also outline all my lecture slides and I can also get it to design assignments and also a grading rubric and things like that. And it's not that far, you can imagine, that it would certainly be able to do a good first pass of being able to grade assignments. And it will probably be able to do a good first pass, you know, once we get a few things up of mimicking my voice in giving these lectures uh, as well. So I could be fully automated. But that is not the issue. It's only a reflection on how limited what we're doing is now. When I can do all that in a few seconds, that leaves time for me open to do a lot of the things that I just don't have time for and with the assistance of ChatGPT could do a much better job. For instance, designing better graphics for my classes, mm -hmm. designing animations and other things to help explain concepts, designing a tutor, and a colleague of mine has already done this, to help students learn in stages about things rather than being spout out at a lecture. These are all the things that become possible. And so you look at that and you say, yeah, 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 my job as I previously did it is under threat. But that's not the job I wanted to do. All right. Well, when you think about AI, you divide it into three categories. Two of these, point solutions and application solutions, are already being used. Can you tell us what they are and perhaps give us examples? Basically, uh, the thing to remember about all the recent advances in artificial intelligence is that they're all about one thing, prediction. Prediction is a very useful thing that we do. It's the way we look at, at information that we have and we turn it into information that we need, like taking barometric readings and turning it into a weather forecast, taking uh, text and turning it into another language. That's all prediction. We use that prediction in helping us make decisions and working out what to do. And a point solution is a situation where we're already trying to predict something, but now we've got AI to do that job, and so it's going to be much better. And so I already mentioned language translation, image recognition, credit card fraud detection. And so those tasks are just enhanced. Mm. When you've got applications, you have to do a bit more. It's, uh, you know, yes, a prediction would be useful, but you haven't quite worked out all the how you'd use the prediction. <laughs> And so we make up applications to do that. For instance, we have a prediction being able to identify people's 
faces. Well, when you put that in a phone and attach it to the unlocking device, you have an application that uses AI doing something the phone was never doing before Mm -hmm. to help you secure that phone. So that's an application solution. So those are the two easiest things to adopt AI on and develop them. That's the first two. But the third one is the use of AI to transform systems. Now, that is obviously very different. It is extremely different. This has happened with major technologies before. People don't realize that it it took 40 years from Edison's light bulb for electricity to be really used in large measure in, you know, manufacturing plants and things like that. And the reason for that is these plants had to be redesigned completely to take advantage of electricity. The same thing has occurred with radical technologies before. So we'd expect that for AI, it's going to be a similar thing. And the issue really is when you get better predictions of things, you have to be able to do it, implement it, and not disrupt other stuff. So it doesn't help a hospital to know that in three months, your risk of heart attack is going to be much, much higher because of things going on in your body. Because they're equipped to, if you're having a heart attack, we can deal with you. (laughs) And that's how the system is. There's no scope for saying, oh, you should come in and we should assess you for this and that now. It's just not set up for it. But we might have those predictions and we might have them very soon. But in order to implement them in a proper and effective way, we'd have to rethink how hospitals operate beyond the bounds of the reactive way many of these things occur right now. Right. So we're kind of in the between times. I touched before, Josh, on this idea that AI will take jobs, but I know that there is a feeling that it will also create them. The one thing I get when I play around with ChatGPT is I look at this and think, to use this effectively, that's going to take a lot of training. My, even my, myself, <laughs> I can imagine it's going to take years to really see its potential and use it properly, much in the same way as if you're using an Excel spreadsheet. It actually takes a while to learn how to make that really powerful for you. And so I think there's going to be opportunities there, but we're not even at the stage that anyone knows how to use ChatGPT properly. <laughs> we're only getting to that, and we're going to get a flourishing ecosystem of people who use these models to build applications and other things that will take some of the need for us to learn those skills away. So I think it's going to just change things, much the same way as the internet changed things, etc. I don't think it's a, a direct threat for any job because for the vast majority of jobs, what ChatGPT can do is improve the skills of everybody working at that job. I suppose it's the other AIs to come that might be more transformational that yes there might be other ais in the future that can do things you know it's it's natural for us to think okay is there anything special that's going on inside of us that somebody couldn't build from the ground up a machine to do that seems like a way off i mean we haven't even been able to build machines that are able to do the things that even very primitive life can do <laughs> in this field, let alone getting us to the level of being able to produce an AI dog or something like that. There's a long way to go. So I don't think that threat is even on the horizon. This current burst in what we call artificial intelligence, we might not have called it artificial intelligence, and if that makes us feel better, maybe we shouldn't. So we we can look for boosts in productivity 
as we learn to use this sort of thing and as it gets better. But in the long term, it's impossible to say what it might lead to. I suppose the thing that would be the biggest challenge is, is an AI that can do those human things that are about empathy and creativity and warmth. Um, I suppose those things can be simulated, but at the moment, there's still a thing that we can do and they can't. Right, right. I believe that to be the case, although Daniel Kahneman at a conference we organized a few years ago, um, he is the great uh, psychologist yes. who won the Nobel Prize. He, he said he doesn't think there's a thing that machines won't be able to do that we can do. In other words, he, he thinks that the machines will be able to do all that empathy and all that stuff <laughs> as, as, as much as we'd ever wanted. It's his, his view. And, and he does that because he's studied people and he thinks people can be remade. Watch this space. Joshua Gans is the author of Power and Prediction, The Disruptive Economics of Artificial Intelligence. That's it for now. The Money's produced by Kate McDonald. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.